I grew up in the suburban city of Sandy, south of Salt Lake City in northern Utah. Anyone who's listened to my podcast up to this point can tell that I love movies. This appreciation for films bleeds into most aspects of my life. This may be a little known fact nationally, but Utahns as a whole love their movies. There are several reasons for this. Large families, lots and lots of kids, less partying and alcohol use than other states, and a more subdued nightlife situation than you'll find nearly anywhere else in the country. Over the years, Salt Lake has had some great movie houses. The Center Theater, the Capitol Theater, the Utah Theater, the Uptown, and the classic theater that I remember most, the Villa Theater, an enormous 1,300-seat cinematic edifice that opened in 1949 at 3092 South Highland Drive. I remember seeing Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade there in May of 1989. I recall the distinct smell of popcorn and the sea of humanity waiting to get into the theater as we were excited to see the third installment in the Indiana Jones series, featuring, of course, Harrison Ford, but this time with Sean Connery and an up-and-coming actor by the name of River Phoenix. Everybody's lost but me. River Phoenix died on October 31st, 1993 at the age of 23 of a drug overdose from a combination of cocaine and heroin, commonly known as speedball. He had spent the better portion of his last two months on Earth in the state of Utah shooting the film Dark Blood, which was his final project and would be released 19 years later in 2012. The opening sequence of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade was shot in southern Utah near the Arches National Park area, where Indiana locates a chamber that houses the Cross of Coronado and hops on a circus train to get away from some scoundrels wanting to steal his newly found treasure. Junior? Yes, sir. It is you, Junior. Don't call me that, please. Sean Connery died of heart failure on October 31st, 2020 in his sleep at his home in the Bahamas. He was 90 years old and had been out of the limelight for virtually 20 years. Growing up in Sandy in the 80s, I also remember seeing movies at the Sandy Starship Theaters, which was a four-screen complex open in December of 1980 and had a futuristic space-themed design capitalizing on the popular films of the day, namely the early Star Wars and Star Trek films. The Sandy Starship closed in the year 2000 after its 20-year lease expired. On November 10th, 1988, Movie 7 opened less than a block away from the Sandy Starship Theaters, also in the area known as the Sandy Mall. The opening of the more up-to-date Movie 7 featured advanced ticket sales and the first THX certified auditorium in Salt Lake County. In the summer of 1989, I was watching Tim Burton's Batman starring Michael Keaton and Jack Nicholson with my dad and two of my best friends, Jacob and Paul, who are brothers. Less than a quarter of the way through the movie, I choked on a sweet tart. My dad followed me into the hall when I was then able to cough up the sweet tart and head back in and enjoy the rest of the movie. To this day, I can't enjoy sweet tarts the way that I did before that day. Don't kill me, man! Don't kill me! Don't kill me, man! I'm not going to kill you. I want you to do me a favor. I want you to tell all your friends about me. What are you? In the summer of 1991, two additional auditoriums were added to Movie 7, and the theater's name changed to Movies 9. Movies 9 became a discount dollar theater in February 2000, a few months after the opening of the nearby Megaplex 17 at Jordan Commons. 
Later on in this episode, our story will take us to the site where the theaters at Jordan Commons were built at the northeast corner of 9400 South and State Street in Sandy, Utah. Over the past two decades, several films have done extremely well at the box office in Utah. The Marvel movies, the newest generation of Star Wars films, and the majority of the Harry Potter films had at least two or three Utah theaters that finished top 10 in the highest earning movie theaters in the United States for these films during their initial theatrical releases. For example, in 2011, an article from the LA Times stated that a bulk of the U.S. business for Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 2, the final film in the original Harry Potter series, came from the Salt Lake City, Utah area. Utah's Megaplex theaters at Jordan Commons and Sandy sold more advanced tickets to the final Potter film than any other theater in the country with $360,400 in receipts. Theaters in New York and San Francisco followed closely behind, but the fifth highest grossing theater in the country was also in the Salt Lake City area at the Megaplex theaters at the District in South Jordan. At Jordan Commons, all 17 of the theater's screens were playing Harry Potter at midnight on Friday, November 11, 2011. Tickets for the film were selling out so rapidly online in the weeks leading up to the movie's debut that the theater decided to show the movie virtually nonstop for the first 24 hours of the movie's release. The cinema also ran marathon screenings of previous Harry Potter installments before Deathly Hallows Part 2 premiered and sold VIP ticket packages that allowed certain patrons to sip on butterbeer and participate in costume contests. Starting at 6 a.m. on November 10th, 2011, I attended a Harry Potter marathon at the Megaplex Theaters at Thanksgiving Point in Lehigh with my friend Adam. The marathon lasted 20 hours as the final Harry Potter film let out a little after 2 a.m. on the morning of Friday, November 11th. The LA Times article continued. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is headquartered in Salt Lake City, and Jeffrey Roy Holland, a Mormon senior apostle, appears to be a Potter supporter, having referred to Rowling's books in public addresses. From one address in 2006, You're well aware of the Harry Potter books and movies by J.K. Rowling. One of the reasons the books are so popular, I think, is that they show children victorious in battle against dark forces. They give readers hope that even in total darkness, there is that spark of light. Despite the powerful evil arrayed against them, they know they can defeat the darkness. But fundamental to the message of Harry Potter is the idea that children don't, indeed can't, fight their battles alone. In fact, the one gift that saves Harry over and over again is the love of his mother who died protecting him from evil. Without any question, one of the best defenses against the dark arts, to use a phrase from the Harry Potter books, is close family ties. Parental love, family activity, gentle teaching, and respectful conversation, sweet time together, can help keep the generations close and build bonds that will never be broken. This all ties together with the story of this episode, when the darkness of a tragedy in the late 1930s would cloud the towns of Sandy, South Jordan, Riverton, Draper, Bluffdale, and Harriman, and those affected would need to rely on one another to get through it. But let's start with the story of how Jordan Commons came to be, and more specifically, the property on which it was built. At the Larry H. Miller Megaplex, you don't have to sleep overnight to get a seat for the big show. Reserve your favorite seat at the box office, your smartphone, or at megaplextheaters.com. And that seat is all yours. No long lines or scrambling for a place to sit. 
The Megaplex 17 theaters at Jordan Commons opened in November of 1999. Just two years ago, a few months prior to COVID-19 spreading rapidly across the United States, Jordan Commons celebrated its 20th anniversary with great fanfare. Gail Miller, the widow of Larry H. Miller, a business magnate in the Salt Lake City, Utah area who purchased the Utah Jazz in the 1980s and owned several automobile dealerships and other businesses in the area, spoke of the inception of the Megaplex Theaters. Larry Miller passed away in 2009 and is buried in the Salt Lake City Cemetery. As I mentioned in a previous episode, I give tours at that very cemetery, and we are always sure to stop and pay our respects to Larry Miller. Movie going was one of mine and Larry's favorite pastimes because it was inexpensive. We could walk to a theater downtown and we could afford a 50, a 50 cent movie. And so we did a lot of that. It became very near and dear to our hearts. Many, many years later, we were given the opportunity to build our own theater. In 1914, Jordan High School was built in the heart of Sandy, Utah, and was the proud home of the Beat Diggers for over 80 years. As the student population swelled, the historic building aged. And in 1996, when a new high school was built to replace it, city officials called on businessman Larry H. Miller, who thought he saw an opportunity. The mayor of Sandy was getting ready to decide what should happen on the campus of Jordan High School. He came to Larry and he said, Larry, we really would like you to buy that land and do something with it. So Larry said, what, what could we do? We had not been in the movie business then, but he got his people together and talked about what should go on that property and it turned out that it would make a wonderful theater complex. The words came to me at that time really strongly that if you build it they will come and I said to Gail, I, I, I know it sounds like something out of the movie and, and uh, I says but I can't even talk about it and tell people about the experience because the line was already used you know but uh, Jordan Commons is, is an extension of that. In 1997, construction began on a community complex that would include an office tower, restaurants, parking, and of course, the first location of Larry H. Miller Megaplex Theater. The original Megaplex 17 at Jordan Commons was built on almost the exact same footprint where Jordan High School once sat at 9400 South and State. If you drive by the theater today, there is even an homage to Jordan High School as Larry Miller had the old doorway entrance to Jordan High School on State recreated to look the way that it did when the school was there. Pillars, steps, doors and all. There's a wall inside Megaplex theaters near the IMAX at the North End that is a tribute to the old Jordan High School, which was torn down in 1998 to make way for Jordan Commons. Part of that tribute to the old Jordan High School, home of the Beat Diggers, mentions a tragic event that took place in 1938 at a railroad crossing in nearby South Jordan, Utah, less than two miles from the school. It was the worst school bus accident in the history of the United States up to that point, as well as the worst railroad crossing accident in general, and it would affect multiple towns in the southern suburbs of Salt Lake City for years to come, where the stories of the sad event would be passed down and reports of hauntings at the old Jordan High School at 9351 South State would be commonplace. It would also affect changes to both school bus and train crossing laws in all of the United States. Welcome to Saints and Sinners, True Crime in the History of the West, as we discuss the Jordan High School bus-train collision tragedy of 1938.
Sometimes, to clear my head and process life, I love to go for walks alone. This past fall and winter, I took many walks near the area where I live. Most of them were for several miles. I normally walk in the area of Southtown Mall, a shopping mall that opened in 1986. I even passed the spot in Sandy where Elizabeth Smart, who had been kidnapped from her home at age 14 by Brian David Mitchell in June of 2002, was found walking near State Street in Sandy on March 12, 2003, and subsequently returned to her family. On these walks, I would usually put on my headphones and take my smartphone and listen to inspirational music or YouTube videos, as well as some podcasts. On one of my walks, I crossed an overpass of Interstate 15, and there was a slight early October chill in the air as the cars passed beneath me, going north and south on the freeway. I crossed over the bridge and came to South Jordan Gateway. I turned right and started to head north. It was then that I remembered that I had heard in my years growing up in Sandy that it was near there that a school bus full of students on their way to Jordan High School was crossing the train tracks in the 1930s and was hit by a train. Along with the stories of the bus being hit by the train came stories of the old Jordan High School being haunted by the ghosts of the students who died that morning over 80 years ago. I quickly did a Google search on my phone as I walked north on the sidewalk, nearing what is now the South Jordan Frontrunner Station. As I said in the last episode, the Frontrunner is a commuter train that runs north and south along the Wasatch Front in the metropolitan areas of Provo, Salt Lake City, and Ogden. It follows nearly exactly the same route where that fateful train had been heading north that day back in the 1930s when the lives of so many would either be changed or ended. On my phone, I located the spot where the train had hit the bus that day. Right after the Embassy Suites Hotel on Jordan Gateway, there's a street called Ultradent Drive. Ultradent is a company with several offices in the area. Ultradent Drive is essentially 10200 South. If you follow the grid system in Salt Lake County laid out by the great Brigham Young in the 19th century, that's 102nd South, or 102 blocks from Temple Square. I turned right on Ultradent Drive and headed east on the sidewalk, alone, in the dark. I could see in the distance some barricades at the end of the dead-end road that were placed to prevent drivers from crossing the tracks there. It was there that that bus full of students was hit by a train in 1938. In the months that followed, I would incorporate that place into my regular walking route. I would walk by there almost on a daily basis. There is a noticeable thickness mixed with a strange peaceful calm as you stand next to those barricades and think of those who lost their lives there. There's also a set of barricades on the east side of the tracks, as it dead ends there as well. I remember a few days later I was walking along the frontage road between I-15 and the front runner tracks heading to that location of the train accident once again when as I walked the street lights overhead went out one by one as I walked underneath them, leaving me in the dark as if to set the proper mood for the location and what happened there nearly 83 years before. A raccoon crossed the road in front of me and startled me. I've walked by there several times since. Dozens and dozens of times, in fact, and it still feels peaceful there. It's almost as if that spot has worked to heal over and compensate for the sadness that once lingered at 100 seconds south and 400 west, formerly known as Bergen's Crossing. Let's go back in time to the events leading up to the railroad crossing tragedy. 
1907, Jordan High School took root when a student body of just seven students, led by Weston Morley, began meeting in the basement of a church in Midvale, Utah. This small group began to grow, and the parents of those students paid Morley small amounts of money to teach their children. The enrollment numbers continued to increase, and soon it was necessary to move the students and the faculty, now more than just Weston Morley, into their first real school building. The original school was known as the People's College. It soon became clear that a full-fledged edifice of learning was needed. In 1914, Jordan High School opened its doors at 9351 South State Street in Sandy. It served the predominantly Mormon students in the nearby southern half of Salt Lake County from the towns of Sandy, Draper, Bluffdale, Riverton, South Jordan, and Midvale. Along with the population of those towns, the school grew and grew. Fast forward to Thursday, December 1st, 1938. Sandy at that time had fewer than 1,500 residents, and Jordan High School had an enrollment of under 400. That's even when incorporating the students that came from all of the surrounding towns. 38 of the nearly 400 students braved a late fall snowstorm on that fateful Thursday morning. They climbed aboard a school bus headed for Jordan High exactly a week after Thanksgiving for what should have been the usual 45-minute or so ride to school. The bus was a 54-passenger 1935 GMC Superior and was about 28 feet long and was not equipped with a heater. Driving the bus was 29-year-old Farrell Silcox. In those days, even when there was heavy snowfall, snow days, or days off school due to inclement weather, were not common. Earlier in the morning, Silcox looked out the kitchen window as he quickly downed a cup of coffee and saw the moderate to light snow falling. He decided he would go ahead and start his normal bus route crisscrossing the south end of the Salt Lake Valley. He kissed his wife goodbye and headed out. The belief in the days following the accident was that the snowfall that morning on his route was extreme. While snow was falling extremely heavily in Utah County to the south, the weather along the route that Silcox navigated that morning could not be described as extreme. Still, Silcox left about a half an hour early that morning to allow for the extra time it might take to pick up the kids in that weather and get them to school before the school bell sounded. Several of the kids on the bus route that morning would miss the bus, a fortunate occurrence for them, because Silcox was so early. The route was dotted with sugar beet farms and families who relied on crops to sustain their livelihoods. There were quite a few kids who were used to getting up that early and would catch the bus that morning. Many of those who got on the bus that morning were kids who were in the Jordan High School band. In fact, a few of them had performed a concert the night before. As they entered the bus, they piled their instruments up next to the driver's seat. They made their way back to their seats on the cold bus that morning and continued their ride to school. There was a single row of double seats running right down the center of the bus. It wasn't laid out like buses today with the aisle in the middle and the seats down both sides. You can sit here if you want. The bus did, however, have yellow paint as we've grown accustomed to having on school buses of today. There were also two rows of benches that were fitted directly up against the inner walls of the bus, so students sitting there had their backs to the walls and windows of the bus and faced the center. The bus was eight feet wide. Once the normal route of picking up students was complete, the bus headed north. The students were extremely bundled up as they knew it would be cold on the bus with no heater. On a backcountry road that ran parallel to the Denver and Rio Grande Western tracks, on the west side of the tracks, the bus made its way north. 
It traveled through rural South Jordan and was nearing Sandy, getting closer to its final destination of Jordan High School. By this time, there were 39 students on board and they were talking quietly. They'd come under the wrath of Silcox before when they had made too much noise so they knew to control themselves at this point. Christmas and the school band concerts that would come with it were likely topics of conversation. Many were probably still talking about what they did over Thanksgiving break the week before. A pretty 17-year-old named Naomi Lewis had written a poem the night before, most likely for English class. She'd never get to turn it in. Her poem would be etched in granite in 2013 at the 75-year anniversary of the bus crash when a memorial would be opened in South Jordan. The poem was called Earth's Angels. I like to think that the wind is angels in the trees, stately noble angels that no one ever, ever sees. When the world is peaceful and people are living right, they rustle the branches gently through the entire night. But when the world is wicked, then sorrow bursts from the trees, and it sounds like the wailing, woeful hum of hostile, atrocious bees. But in my imagining, it's angels sorrowing in the tree. At night, they call a council of angels on the earth. Each angel chooses a mortal to guide to his preordained worth. So I like to think that wind is angels in the trees, stately, noble angels that no one ever ever sees. 15-year-old Virginia Nelson closed her English book, having just finished the last of her vocabulary homework. She sat back and relaxed and chatted with her friends. Her homework would never be turned in either. The bus was nearing a wide spot in the road known as Bergen's Crossing. The road made a sharp 90-degree turn to the right at that point, leading to where the railroad crossing was. There was a slight increase in grade up a little hill to cross the tracks at what was then an unsignaled crossing. On all other days but this day full of tragic fate, the bus would then go down the grade on the east side of the tracks and make a sharp 90 degree turn to the left. Now on the other side of the tracks, less than two miles from Jordan High. As I said, there were benches lining the walls. The windows were slightly fogged that morning. The bus made the sharp right to cross the tracks there were students who had their backs to the right wall of the bus and quite possibly may have peeked back over their shoulders when they thought they had heard something coming. The weather caused Silcox to start his day early that morning, and it was also wreaking havoc with the Denver and Rio Grande West train schedule. Freight number 31, known as the Flying Ute, pulled out of Helper, Utah, just over 100 miles to the southeast of Sandy at just past 3.30 a.m., almost three hours late. Locomotive 3708 that was pulling the train that day wasn't even breaking a sweat as it dragged 50 freight cars, 38 of them empty, out of Helper. As I said, the snowstorm had been worse south of Salt Lake County and had initially delayed the train in getting out of Helper. Had the weather been clear, they would have rumbled through Provo, 27 miles or so from Bergen's Crossing, at just about the time they actually pulled out of Helper, but instead they rolled through Provo at 7.54 a.m. Most accounts of the accident would have you believe that it was a full-blown whiteout blizzard in Sandy and South Jordan at just after 8.30 a.m. that morning, but most eyewitnesses stated the storm had actually left the area by then. The train reached up to 52 miles per hour as it made its way from Provo to South Jordan. It was still going that speed as it passed the whistleboard for Bergen's Crossing. On the right side of the steamer's cab, L. Remmer, the engineer, 
reached up and grabbed the whistle lanyard and tugged it, blasting the steamer's whistle in the long, short, long crossing warning. Only extremely light, peaceful snow was falling at this point. Visibility was actually quite clear. Both fireman Al Elton in the cab of the train and the train's conductor, who was in the caboose, nearly a half mile behind the locomotive, confirmed that they could see the entire length of the train as they approached the crossing. Steam locomotives did have a drawback, however. The crew generally had almost no forward visibility, regardless of the weather. The engineer sat on the right side of the cab, the fireman on the left, and the cab had extremely small windows, more like slits than windows. Through these tiny openings, they had only a very, very limited angle of view to the left or right. At the time of the accident that December morning, Al Elton was leaning out of the left side cab window, peering ahead as they neared the crossing. L. Raymer yanked on the whistle cord, which sent the sound of the whistle piercing through the countryside. Elton saw a yellow school bus several hundred yards ahead of them lumber around the curve at Bergen's Crossing and ease to a stop about 25 feet from the tracks. He thought that the bus had noticed the train and was going to stay put, but he kept watching it anyway. There was never really a great consensus among the living students as to whether Silcox opened the bus door to give him a better view of the tracks, but truth be told, with the visibility that morning and the amount of windows on the bus, he should have been able to see what was coming anyway. We'll never know for sure whether or not he opened the door, looked, or even said a few Hail Marys, but Silcox downshifted eased the clutch out, and pulled forward onto the tracks. One of the kids at the front of the bus glanced to the right, saw the front end of the locomotive hurtling towards them, and only an instant before the world exploded around them, screamed. Train! Elton, leaning out of the window on the left side of the cab, likely went pale and bug-eyed as he saw the tires of the bus begin to roll forward. He yelled for the emergency brakes as the front bumper of the bus crossed the first rail. Raymer slammed the throttle closed and yanked on the air brake lever. The bus was maybe 200 feet ahead of them as the brakes grabbed and the wheels locked, letting out a high-pitched seal-on-steel scream. The type of high-pitched metal-on-metal sound that only precedes these kinds of tragedies but they likely hadn't been able to even slow down the slightest bit before the front of the gigantic engine bit into the right side of the bus broadside with a cataclysmic explosion. The boy's shouted warning came almost at the exact same instant the bus blew apart in a deadly burst of flying metal. It brings to mind what someone in Tower 1 of the World Trade Center must have felt like on 9-11 as they glanced out the window of one of the upper floors facing north and saw the first American Airlines flight heading straight for their floor. Glass, seats, shards of twisted metal, and far too many kids were strewn about as the right side of the bus wrapped itself around the front platform of the large steam engine like aluminum foil. The rest of the body ripped loose from the chassis and tumbled like a hard, kicked tin can for 101 feet before landing upright, leaving a trail of coats, books, homework, lunches, seats, and injured children. 
Everyone on the bus was ejected, and 23 of the kids on board the bus, along with the driver, Farrell Silcox, were killed instantly as the train ripped the bus apart. Two others, terribly injured, would die within the next few days. The train was slightly derailed during the incident, tearing up railroad ties and scattered shrapnel, as well as digging up the parallel roadbed until the front end of the train finally came to a stop, nearly 2,300 feet from the crossing. No one got out of this uninjured, and the injuries, in many cases, were life-changing. Only about 30% of homes in those days had telephones, and this was open country back then. June Wynn was waiting for the bus on her front porch about a quarter mile north of the crossing when she heard the crash. She ran into the road only to look south and see the dismembered chassis as it was being shoved down the track ahead of the train. June ran back into the house and dropped her book, screaming for her parents who likely made the first phone call ringing the operator right away regarding the incident. A couple miles away, Wanda Shields stood just inside the front entrance of Jordan High School watching the buses roll in. She was waiting for the bus her best friend was riding on. It was the bus she would have been on as well had her little sister not been sick the night before, causing Wanda's mother to not allow her to go to a sleepover at her friend's house because she was needed at home to care for her sick little sister. This is an interview that Wanda gave courtesy of KSL News in Salt Lake City. I just can't hardly imagine it's been 75 years. To this day, Wanda Naylor just wonders why. I've never forgotten. I haven't dwelled on it. But it makes you want to cry every time I think about it. If not for her friend being sick, on December 1st, 1938, Naylor would have slept over her house and went on her bus. Instead, Naylor took her own bus and waited at the old Jordan High School for her friend to arrive. They never came, never came, and of course I was inside because it was snowy. We went in the school and went to our first class, and the teacher was crying. Miss Hawkins was her name. Then the bell rang uh, very loud two or three times and wanted all students in the auditorium. And then that's when we were told of the tragedy. 23 of her classmates and the bus driver were killed when they crossed a railroad track and were hit by a train. It was an awful, an awful day. Joyce Holder's older sister, Virginia, was one of those killed. I can remember mother coming to the school to get me out of class and told me what had happened. I was devastated. Um, like I said, she was my only sibling and I have missed her so terribly. And I think the older I get, the more I miss her. I would give anything if I could talk to her now and get her advice and counsel on things. The crash made national news and prompted new federal laws for school buses crossing tracks. Out of bad things come good things. Lamar Maybe's mother, Anne, was one of those who survived. Barely. She was so badly beat up. She had Her back was broken, both legs were broken, her arms were broken. The person that she was sat next to was killed in the accident. And although time has moved on and all signs of the crash erased, for those who lived through it, they will always remember the day their childhood changed forever. Nobody knows how many memories I have of all these bus wreck victims, and I never, never once forgot them. Wanda went to class that morning where she found her first period teacher and several kids crying. The bell rang three times, signaling that an emergency assembly was needed in the auditorium. There was no PA in those days, so the triple bell ring was code for an emergency. The principal told them that there had been a horrible crash, but gave few other details. School was canceled for the day and buses were called back to the school to pick up the kids 
and take them back home. At least seven of the survivors suffered critical injuries and two of them would die. 23 children died at the scene. Many of them were tough to identify. The investigation started immediately and the first investigator on the scene was Lote Kinney. He confirmed that visibility wasn't overly obscured by the weather. He got to the scene around 9.15 a.m., about 45 minutes after the accident. Kinney quickly concluded that the Silcox should have seen the train bearing down on the crossing. Surviving students confirmed that the roads were clear and the bus didn't so much as slip at all along its route that morning leading up to the crossing. The bus's chassis was jammed under the front of the train so tightly that torches had to be used to free it. The train's engineer confirmed that there was absolutely no way to get a 50-car freight train to stop in 200, or for that matter, even 2,000 feet. The basic cause of the crash was quickly determined. Silcox drove the bus in front of the train. What wasn't determined, and is somehow unknown even to this very day, is why he drove the bus in front of the train. This is likely the reason that, as the story has been told and retold over the years, the weather conditions have been exaggerated to where most people think it was a whiteout snowstorm at the time. It simply wasn't. It's likely that Silcox simply fell victim to complacency and muscle memory that morning, that he simply didn't watch, look, and listen, check, and recheck, and he crept across the tracks like he had hundreds of times before. The flying Ute locomotive should have passed Bergen's Crossing almost four hours earlier, before anyone on the bus had even thought about waking up that morning. So Silcox had no reason to believe that there would be a train coming. He simply wasn't expecting it. The crash was big news. It made the front page of the New York Times in an era when newspaper was king. It forced into legislation laws requiring school bus drivers to stop, open the door and side window and actively look and listen for a train, laws that still exist today. In all likelihood, these laws and safety improvements inspired by the accident were of no great comfort to the residents of Sandy, South Jordan, and the surrounding areas. Christmas was likely shattered that year as 23 families, three of the families lost two children each, planned funerals rather than holiday celebrations. Funerals were held at the school itself and surrounding areas. Bergen's Crossing sits today as a reminder of that tragedy so long ago. Trains still cross in that area as the front-runner commuter train still makes its way up and down the Wasatch Front from Ogden to Provo and back again. Amtrak, as well as cargo trains, also regularly pass through the area. The old Jordan High School is gone now, but a new Jordan High sits less than a mile to the south. The 1996-1997 school year was its first year in existence. The Megaplex Theaters at Jordan Commons still sits exactly where the old school once sat. Those who passed on likely roamed the hallways at that old school. Growing up in the area, I had always heard stories of the spirits of the children and bus driver who died that day from that horrific crash remaining in the hallways of Jordan High School and haunting the band room, locker rooms, auditorium, and gymnasium of Jordan High. A good portion of the information for this podcast is from the blog Disastrous History, which gave a great account of the incident. Information and research also came from KSL News in Salt Lake City, as well as articles in the Deseret News and New York Times. To quote Jeffrey R. Holland again regarding darkness and light and the need to rely on others, you are well aware of the Harry Potter books and movies by J.K. Rowling. One of the reasons the books are so popular, I think, 
is that they show children victorious in battle against dark forces. They give readers hope that even in darkness, there is that spark of light. Despite the powerful evil arrayed against them, they know they can defeat the darkness. But fundamental to the message of Harry Potter is the idea that children don't, indeed can't, fight their battles alone. In fact, the one gift that saves Harry over and over again is the love of his mother, who died protecting him from evil. Without any question, one of the best defenses against the dark arts, to use a phrase from the Harry Potter books, is close family ties. Parental love, family activity, gentle teaching, and respectful conversation, sweet time together, can help keep the generations close and build bonds that will never be broken. That tragic day in December 1938 may have temporarily separated family members, but certainly left bonds that will never be broken. I'm Chad Mortensen. Thank you for listening to Saints and Sinners, True Crime in the History of the West. Mm-hmm.